0: Good morning, Good morning. Open up if you would with me to Revelation chapter twelve this morning. Revelation twelve. If I didn't have the privilege to meet you coming in, my name is Ken Delay. Serve as the lead pastor here, and it is a joy to open God's word with you this morning. Well, World War Two was a massive effort by an entire nation. People were serving in all different. Capacities, those on the front lines and in the supply lines and on the factory lines; those growing victory gardens and sailing ships and flying planes and training soldiers and gathering intelligence and standing guard, people from all walks of life. Just because you were doing one of those things, though, didn't mean that you understood the big picture of the war serving in a factory in Indiana, didn't let you know how things were going in Europe. Serving in Europe didn't let you know how the naval war was in the Pacific. So people were hungry for news. They wanted to know how goes the war. And so back then they would crowd into movie theaters and and catch the news on the movie theater before the movie started. Or they would buy newspapers. Some of you are old enough to have bought a newspaper. Uh, they would buy newspapers to read the headlines of what's going on in the war, or they would gather around the radio. Shh, quiet. President's about to come on, give an update on the war. It's a good picture for what we get here in Revelation chapter 12. It is an update on the war. It's an update on the war that is raging right now. A war that you are a part of. It's a war that's been raging throughout human history. It is the war of history. And it's a world war. And though you may be serving in it, that doesn't mean you necessarily know what's going on in the war. Though you might be busy raising kids and fighting sin and resisting temptation, And working to God's glory and building a healthy marriage or waiting for a healthy marriage or serving or praying or giving or ministering or evangelizing. Just because you're in the war doesn't mean you know what's going on in the rest of the battle. It's a world war after all. And so the Lord gives us this so that His servants can know what's going on that we can have hope as we fulfill the role that the Lord has given us in this war of history. So this morning, we get to gather around the radio. President of the United States is about to speak. Even better, our Commander-in-Chief is about to speak. The Lord God Almighty has an update for His servants on the status of the war give our attention to God's Word. We're going to look at the most of Revelation chapter 12, the first two paragraphs this morning. As is typical for the book of Revelation, especially if you haven't been here, typical for the book of Revelation is to teach through pictures, to teach through visions. And this one has two main characters. I'm going to just introduce them to you before we read. The first main character is is a woman, and she is a picture of the people of God. She's a picture of the people of God from from every age of history, from the Old Testament to the New Testament to today. So the woman is the people of God, and the other, perhaps easier to interpret, character is the dragon, who, of course, is Satan himself. With those brief introductions, let's give our attention now to God's Word. Follow along as I read... Revelation chapter 12. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns. And on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now, war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. God's word. So we begin again with our two main characters. And first, the woman. The woman is the people of God. She appears for us in verse 1, clothed in the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. Here is the people of God clothed in honor and dignity and and glory worthy of the people of God. The, The 12 stars on her crown. Picture in the Old Testament the 12 tribes of Israel. And picture in the New Testament the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And she is about to give birth to a son. This one is spoken of in verse 5, and it's a key verse because it tells us what's going on. In verse 5, she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. That phrase right there, to rule the nations with a rod of iron, is a quote from Psalm chapter 2, and it's the key to understanding what's happening here. So that quote from Psalm chapter 2 is a quote about the Messiah. When when the Lord says to the Father, when the Father says to the Lord, ask of me, and I'll give you the nations for your inheritance. You will rule them with a rod of iron. And so here, here is the one who's coming to rule the nations with a rod of iron. In other words, here comes the Messiah. So, as we're trying to interpret this picture, this this woman who is pregnant is pre- is pregnant with Christ. This is a birth narrative of Jesus. This is Bethlehem. This is speaking of when he first came to earth. Now, we might be tempted to think, and understandably, that then the woman must be Mary because she's the one who gave birth to the Messiah, and of course she was. But, but John is speaking in bigger pictures than this than simply of the one particular woman who did give birth to the Messiah. He's speaking of the people of God throughout particularly the Old Testament as those who were pregnant with the Messiah throughout the Old Testament. Do you remember how things got started back in the garden? The serpents showed up in the garden, caused Adam and Eve to be tempted, and they fell. And God came and cursed the serpent and and said that there would be enmity, hatred between him and the seed of the woman. That promise that God was going to send a Messiah through his people, through a woman, was then a promise that God's people carried for thousands of years. They, the people of God in the Old Testament, were pregnant with this promise throughout the Old Testament. And then the day finally came when the people of God, as it were, gave birth to the Messiah. He was born in Bethlehem. Let's introduce the second character again, the dragon. The dragon shows up in verse 3. A sign appeared in heaven, a great red dragon. He is the color of blood. He's the color of Violence, with seven heads, ten horns, and on his heads, seven diadems. The numbers seven and ten are the numbers of completion and fullness. In other words, he comes with with lots of wisdom. And he comes with lots of authority. There's a, there's a world dominion pictured in the fact that he wears these seven different crowns. Now, he's not the rightful ruler. These are borrowed crowns. But they are crowns nonetheless. He then sweeps in and with his tail can take down a third of the stars in the sky. This is, again, this is a picture of his power. It's it's limited power. It's a third of the stars. But, hey, it's power. It's a third of the stars. Right? There's a picture of this dragon is fierce. He's a world-conquering, powerful, evil agent. Now, if we wondered who it was, maybe you picked up on it as we read through in verse 9. It tells us with no uncertain terms, the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent. That's a reference to the garden, right? When he came as a serpent. That ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Like, let's throw every sending him in there together so we understand exactly who we're talking about with this dragon. Okay, we've got our two main characters. What's the update on the war from this? The first one happens in the first paragraph, verses 4 through 6. Verse 4, the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. If you let that picture sit, sit for a moment, it is a terrifying picture. This woman is at her place of most vulnerability. She's she's in the agony of birth pains. She's helpless and weak. And who attends her? Who attends her as she is about to give birth? It is no midwife It is no nurse or doctor or loving companion. Here before her stands, in all of his terrible violence, a dragon set about to consume her child. How horrific. How helpless. Satan knows well the promise of the Messiah, he was there. When God made it in the garden, when God promised that one would come who would crush the head of the serpent, one born of the seed of woman would come and crush the head of the serpent. And so it's an interesting study and slightly beyond what we can do in the sermon. You can read the Old Testament through the lens of satanic attempts to stop the coming of the Messiah. It's a remarkable way to read it. It begins with Cain and Abel. As the enemy stirs up Cain to kill the one through whom the promise might come, Abel. And over and over and over and over again, this violent dragon rises up to stop the coming of the Messiah. But of course, he did this particularly when Christ was being born. You remember the story. Christ, still in Mary's womb, they're they're sent to Bethlehem for the census. And as they arrive, King Herod realizes through the wise men that the prophecy is about to be fulfilled. And what does King Herod do? He unleashes his troops upon the whole region around Bethlehem to kill every male child under three years of age in the entire region. And... Perhaps, as we read that in the book of Luke or wherever we're reading, we, we think, oh, what a wicked, evil plan of Herod's. And indeed, it is a wicked, evil plan of Herod's, but it is much deeper, much viler, much more hate-filled than Herod could have come up with. For here, the dragon waits to destroy the hope of the world in the Messiah. O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. And the dragon hunts the helpless one and wants to devour God's own son. I don't remember that part of the verse. That's what was going on as Bethlehem lay silent. verse 5 She gave birth to a male child one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron but her child was caught up to God and to his throne This is the fastest verse in all the Bible okay This is the cheetah of Bible verses all right We just got through the birth growing up life death resurrection and ascension of Jesus boom in one short verse, all right? So what happened, you know, when 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 the dragon was about to devour Christ, we we remember the rest of that story, right? Like an angel came to Joseph in a dream, said get out of here. And they flee to Egypt. And so Christ is raised in Egypt. And he's kept safe from Herod and he's kept safe from the dragon. So we know that that's how that part of the story unfolds, but in incredible speed, the way that John says it here, she gave birth to a male child. Her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Okay. Well, I guess he grew up, lived a perfect life, died upon the cross, was raised three days later and ascended to sit at the right hand of the father. Woo! All right. He goes quick because the point is this, Satan failed. His plan failed. The dragon couldn't do what he wanted to do. The Messiah now. (laughs) The Messiah now? (laughs) The Messiah now is safely beyond the reach of the dragon. No more concerns. The woman, however, is not. And that's where this passage will will turn. We see the woman fleeing into the wilderness in verse 6. And when we pick up next week... At the very end of the chapter, we're going to see the dragon turn. Realizing he's been foiled and can't get to the Messiah, he's going to go after the people of God. He's going to go after the woman. But before that story continues, we're suddenly taken, in verse 7, into heaven. And our second update on the war. And friends, this has to be the best war update that's ever been given in any language to any people at any time on any planet. This is a wonderful update. It's a second look. It's another look at this time of Christ, when Christ came to earth. What was happening? I think somebody should do like cartoons of this, movie of this, verses 7 through 9. Remarkable read it again. Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who's called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. You can you can picture that old-timey newspaper, Right? with the big block letters on the top in black and white, WAR IN HEAVEN! Whoa! War in heaven just began. The news is that the archangel Michael leads the forces of heaven on an offensive attack. This is heaven going against the dragon. Heaven's on offense. Michael is on the attack. And the dragon, caught off guard nonetheless, fights back. But though he fights back, he is defeated. And in his defeat, he is thrown down from heaven. If you, if you do this kind of thing in your Bible, you could underline the words thrown down, and you will find yourself underlining them five times in just a few short verses. He was thrown down, verse 9. He was thrown down, verse 9. His angels were thrown down, verse 9. And then again in verse 10. There had been a place for them in heaven. Up until this point. There had been a place. What? For the dragon in heaven. Until this point. We want to understand what's happening here. We got to look back and say wait. Okay. What was the condition before this battle? Well. This battle made a change. What was going on before the battle? And, And here's the shocking but true reality before this battle satan had unfettered access to the throne of god unfettered as as the verse says a little bit later he accuses the brothers day and night who does he accuse them to god the devil walks into heaven to accuse god's people of sin we see it in two specific times back in the old testament If you're familiar with the story of Job, at the beginning of that story, Satan comes into heaven from having walked to and fro on the earth and he begins to accuse and slander Job. And God God says, Have you considered my servant? Do you see how my servant loves me? And Satan says, He doesn't love you. Love you. He doesn't love you. He loves what you do for him. He loves the gifts. He loves the health. He loves the protection. You take that away, and he will blaspheme you to your face. This vile, accusing, slanderous speech about one of God's people. We see it again in the book of Zechariah, when the high priest in a vision comes to stand before God, Zechariah chapter 3. And this guy, as would you and as would me, comes into heaven wearing filthy clothes comes in wearing sin, it's clear that in light of the holiness of God, the high priest is hopeless. And that's particularly bad news because he's the high priest. So if the high priest is hopeless, everybody he's representing is toast. And, And he stands before God and he walks in and like, what is the worst thing you could see walking in wearing your own sin to the holy place before God, he walks in to find the accuser standing there with mouth full of hatred, ready to call out to God, justice is due against this one. Justice is due. Do you see his sin? Do you see what he's done? Rise up in your wrath and destroy your people for they deserve it. Accusing day and night. Now, he comes lying, he comes slandering, he comes exaggerating, he comes putting the worst possible spin on things, but the big problem is he comes with evidence. Who does he not have evidence on? Who can the accuser not rightly accuse? How hopeless is it for the people of God To have a prosecuting attorney at the bar of heaven who knows exactly what they've done. For thousands of years, Satan had come into God's courtroom appealing to God's justice against God's people. For thousands of years, he had launched his Hateful accusations. For thousands of years, he had defiled heaven with his vile speech, and then suddenly, news flash war in heaven. Satan thrown down. No more place. No more place. He can't go back. He can't accuse God's people. Suddenly the accuser is on defense. Suddenly the the host of heaven standing so long waiting to attack. So long unable to move forward. Finally on the assault and instantly winning. He's hard pressed. He's pushed back. He's thrown down. So the headline doesn't really read war in heaven. The headline reads victory in heaven. And heaven erupts in praise. Verse 10. I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. Now now, notice what happened. Michael, the archangel, the, the leader of the angels, he was the one who led the attack in heaven. He was the one who who led the forces. But Michael is not the one being praised. God is the one being praised. Christ is the one being praised. The kingdom and the authority and the power of God and of Christ have come. This victory is not angelic. It is divine. Jesus secured the victory. Jesus did the main fighting. Jesus overthrew his enemies. Jesus established the kingdom and the power and the authority. Michael's action was not in winning the victory, it was just in enforcing the terms of the victory that Christ won. So, what is this all talking about? Friends, this is a captivating look at the cross of Jesus Christ. This is an amazing perspective. You've heard that it looked like Jesus was defeated, but in reality, He had won. Well, what did the victory look like? It looked like this! It looked like Michael pulling his sword out and going, let's go, guys! we got to get these folks out of heaven. What victory is this? This is the victory of the cross. This is the greatest war update of all time. For Christ on the cross disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. We read that in other places in our Bible. He changed the state of things. Something happened, something changed. Such that now His enemies are shamed and Christ has new authority. So when He rose from the dead and talked to His disciples, He said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Why? Because of his victory on the cross. A victory then that Michael was able to walk in. I did it. Michael, get busy. Praise God. Okay. So how though, follow with me, how though, did Christ, suffering for the sin of his people, suffering as a substitutionary sacrifice for his people, how did this change reality in heaven? Let me tell you the good news. Christ died for every sin, every single sin of every single one of his people. He died for all of it. He died for everyone. That means justice has been satisfied for you. Justice has been satisfied. And Satan, so long admitted into heaven on the basis of justice. God, they deserve this. God, you should punish them. God, look at what they've done. So long he came standing on the ground of justice. And guess what? There's no more ground for him to stand on. Because for God's people, justice has been satisfied. We are no longer clothed in sin. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. How can we be condemned wearing his righteousness? And if the devil would want, and he does, to bring back our old dead works, and our sin to mind. Christ, the Savior, is standing there. The Lamb who for you was slain. And all He has to do is point to His hands. I paid for that already. Justice is satisfied for them. Satan has nothing to say against God's people. Nothing. (laughs) I wonder, would God the Father, who saw his own son killed for sin, would he countenance any more talk of punishing that sin? of people still deserving his, his wrath, He will not. Not a word, not a syllable, not with the very Lamb of God standing next to Him, whoever lives to intercede. Accusation cannot be brought against the people of God in heaven anymore. Saints, rejoice in this. <laughs> rejoice. Here's, here's, here's your work for the week. Rejoice. Rejoice in this. How many Christians are weighed down by their guilt? Pressed down by their shame? Long worried, is the gospel enough for me? Did he really die for me? Struggling to believe that the gospel is for you. You know you still have an accuser, right? He doesn't get to speak in heaven. He does get to speak to you. Do you hear that voice? What's hard about that voice, just like when he spoke in heaven, is he's right, sort of. When he spoke in heaven, accusations against God's people, they came in wearing filthy clothes. He was right. And about you, friend, he's right as well. Yes, we've sinned. Yes, we've fallen short of the glory of God. But, and here's the other thing <laughs> the Holy Spirit works to convict us of sin. And so we, weak Christians, are often pulled. This is hard to even say, hard to imagine. We have a hard time discerning the voice of the Spirit from the voice of the dragon after we've sinned because we know we're in the wrong. But listen, here's the voice of the Spirit. Come back to the cross. I'm enough for you. His sacrifice is enough for you. Here's the voice of the dragon. Hopelessness. Hopelessness. Jesus died for other people. It's enough for other people. He's not enough for you. You're not in. If you were in, you'd be different. That's the voice of the dragon. That's the voice of the accuser. Friend, that voice has been silenced where it matters, and he can speak no more. So, church, when the voice of the accuser sounds in your ears, look again to Revelation chapter 12. Read the headlines of the newspaper. Gather again around the radio. Your accuser stands no longer in heaven. He's been removed from the courtroom, disbarred from the courtroom. Was he right about you? Yes. But the courtroom's not empty. He's been replaced. He's not just been removed. He's been replaced. Who is he replaced by? First John tells us. This is a go-to-war verse, friends, okay? If anyone does sin, anybody? All right. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate. That's a courtroom word. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So, here's the, here, here's the thing. Gone is the prosecuting attorney. Gone is the accusing attorney. There is now another attorney. A defense attorney. An advocating attorney. No longer is there one who stands in heaven, the accuser of sinners. Now there is one in heaven, the advocate for sinners. Glory to God. And He ever lives to intercede. He stands at the right hand of the Father to intercede on your behalf. So that when you fall, he can call you back. They come back to me. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Who can bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of the Father, who is interceding for us. Dear Saints, here's our application believe the gospel. Believe the gospel for you. Believe the gospel for you. That Christ is enough for you. When you have sinned, believe the gospel. When you have shame, believe the gospel. Recognize that the battle is not just to get you to sin. That's part of the battle. The enemy does that. He tempts. He deceives. But oh, once he's got you, his battle is to keep you in shame and guilt, and beating yourself up, and tearing yourself down. And friends, that's not the voice of the Spirit. That's the voice of the dragon. So when you've sinned, listen to the Spirit and repent. Yes, let us repent of our sin. Don't hide your sin from God or harden your heart to God. No, confess your sin. But having confessed, then believe. It's the other side. Believe that Christ is enough for you. Believe that your sin was Paid for, that the accuser really has been thrown down, that you have an advocate in heaven, and that there was no one who can condemn. This is how we fight. And the war is not over. War update Jesus wins. Main battle was fought. Enemy thrown out of heaven, glory to God. But that's not the last battle. There are still many battles. And in fact, as we're about to read again, the enemy was thrown from heaven, good news from heaven, bad news, to earth. And he knows his time is short. He makes war on the people of God. And what do you think his strategy is? We're going to see several strategies in the next chapter and a half. I'll tell you one of them. To keep you from believing the gospel. To keep you from believing that Christ is enough for you. That's what he wants to do. If the gospel is the power of God for salvation, what do you think the dragon is opposing? He is opposing the gospel of Christ, even in the heart of believers. And so, let's look at the last two verses. They have conquered him. They, speaking of our brothers and sisters in Christ, the people of God, they've conquered him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows his time is short. No longer... Can the enemy reach into heavens? Rejoice, O heaven. But woe to you, O earth. The war is not over. If anything, it has become worse. For now the enemy is here in great wrath, realizing that his days are numbered and he is after God's people. How do God's people win such a war as this? Verse 11 tells us exactly that. Verse 11 is written as though the battle's now over. How did God's people win? How did that happen? How did God's people conquer? Well, it tells us they conquered Him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. In other words, it wasn't their strength. It was Jesus' strength. They conquered by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. What's our testimony? Testimony is... I'm a great sinner, but I have a great Savior. That, I, that I am a great sinner, but my, my accuser has been thrown down, and I have an advocate in heaven, Jesus Christ the righteous. How, how do God's people win against this enemy? They win by believing the gospel. They win by staying near to the blood of Jesus Christ. This is our testimony. Jesus is enough for you. And for me. And we say that to each other in care group because we need the reminder. And we come in on Sunday mornings and we sing the gospel because we need the reminder. And we teach it to our kids because they need the reminder. And we tell the world because they need so desperately to hear it. This is our testimony. And it says that they love not their lives even unto death. A reminder, friends, that this is a war, and that we are troops in that war. How can someone live like that? Don't all people want to preserve their life? Like, who are these crazy saints that love not their life even unto death? Convinced it's not about simply not caring about our lives. It's finding something better to care for. It's finding a bigger love than simply loving our own lives. And that bigger love is Jesus Christ. That bigger bigger love is his name and his glory. and This brings it all together. How, how How does one give their life for Christ? Well, first of all, their life is one of gratitude to Christ. And amazement at Christ. And joy in Christ. And worship of Christ. And that all happens when we believe the gospel. That flows out of the heart that knows, I am in fact a great sinner. And he has in fact forgiven me anyway. that's that's the fuel that the troops need the battle it's good for you fuel too it's the fuel that brings peace and joy and love to god and love to others and a life of gratitude and it makes us ready and willing and able to live for him and if he calls us to die for him as well because he's worthy of it so worship team let's come up And we're going to close in prayer and then we'll then we'll sing together. But I want to close in prayer that the Lord would help us to believe what we've just been reading and proclaiming. Lord, I ask and we pray together that your Holy Spirit, who is present, and we thank you that that you're here, that you would help us, Lord to see Christ clearly and to marvel more in the gospel than we ever have before. Lord, that we would be a gospel-centered church not in name only, but fixated on, amazed at, and glorying in what you have done for us. Lord, wherever we're at, In our love for you, in our gratitude for the gospel, take us one step further. That you would be glorified through our joy and our gratitude and our steadfast service in this war. We pray in your name.